Hello, this is Bixby. Welcome to the Bixby Developers Chat Podcast. Here is your host, Roger Kibbe. Hello, Bixby Developer Chat listeners. Today, I have the honor of talking with Steve Tinkeris. Steve is the founder of Dabble Lab, well known for the amazing online tutorials that they have his consulting work, he's a GPT-3 expert and overall leader in the voice-first world. Steve, please introduce yourself. Yeah, so thanks so much for the opportunity to be on the show, Roger. This is uh, great, and I've uh, enjoyed talking with you about all of these things uh, offline from time to time over the years, so I look forward to to doing that live. But yeah, like you said, I'm Steve Tingaris. I'm the the founder of Dabble Lab, which is a uh, technology education and, and consulting company that that focuses mostly on natural language processing systems for larger enterprises. We do a, a lot of work in the contact center space, and I'm also the uh, the author of Exploring GPT three, which just published, which is a an introduction to using OpenAI's GPT three and the OpenAI API. And what else? I'm Lexa champion and also a, a Twilio champion. We, we do a number of templates for the Amazon Alexa platform and, and a Bixby developer as well. Well, congratulations. I didn't realize your book had just published. So two days ago. GPT, what, how long yeah, ago? Just two days ago. Yeah. And, and they're, the, the publisher is packed publishing and it's been a lot of back and forth because the, the API is still private beta. So there was concern. The book's been done for a little bit, but there has been some concern about releasing the book or publishing the book before the API is actually published. So fingers crossed that OpenAI makes the API available to, to everybody. But the book is, yeah, it's officially out. You can get it through the Amazon by searching GPT-3 or exploring GPT-3. But yeah, it's okay. two days old. Congratulations, and I'm excited about that. I know I definitely want to talk to you about GPT-3 today. I'm super excited about that technology, and I know you've done some deep explorations in it. I'm curious about what you think it's really good at, and then maybe where the hype is outpacing the reality, too, and where maybe it's not so good at some things. But before we get to that, I always love to ask my guests, take me back to the beginning. What was your first experience with voice? Or conversational AI? In any form? <laughs> In any form, sure. <laughs> wow, I'm going to date myself, but I, I think that the first time I was like, it was speak and spell. It, it was this toy that Texas Instruments made. And I was a terrible spell. I still am a terrible speller, but not because of speak and spell. I think I was more just taken by this little machine that, that could talk. And so... I would say very first there. And then Siri early on, you know, I loved that. And then got the invite to buy one of the Amazon Echoes early in 2014. And of course, like I'm a sucker for anything like that. So yeah, I clicked buy. And when that thing came, I was just, yeah, it was so cool. Kind of the first time there was a, a voice first type of computing machine that didn't have a screen, didn't have a keyboard. And to me, that was just super fascinating. And I've sort of been really hooked since then. So I would say first time would be, I, I don't know, the eight nineteen eighties, but for real, I, I, I would say 2014. And, and I did what some, was, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I did some IDR work like for like voice systems using VoxML, which was like, I, I think in the like, 90s or something like that but but yeah the modern stuff 2014 2015 
So do you remember, so did you start developing for Alexa right away or what was the first thing you developed? Well, not right away. It was early 2015. I created a, a skill called Weight Host that was not uh, available anymore. But the idea was that it was a skill that people could use to get the current wait time at, at restaurants. And the way that I was working with a, a few few other people on the, the, the Data Lab team, and, and we had an outbound dialer, we used Twilio to ask people at restaurants what their current wait time was. And they would speak the wait time, and then we'd use voice to text to store that in a database. And then people could ask what the current restaurant wait time is. It, 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 I thought it was a good idea. It's it a little bit more challenging than I thought it would be. Most people would hang up you know, on the, the restaurant side. And there was a lot of challenges. Obviously, Google has is, is, is done a better job at, at that with Duplex. But that was my first thought and the first thing that I started working on with Alexa. And that was in 2015. And then in 2016 or 2000, late 2016, I... Did a like started doing the the tutorials and I did a an Alexa development course for Free Code Camp and uh, yeah that's when I that started getting a lot deeper I guess when I was tr- working on the tutorials and courses. Well, I got to tell you that first thing that's pretty ambitious actually outgoing voice going calling people getting the data and then that is way more ambitious than a typical fact skill that. Most of us kind of kicked off and did that. You know, that's just ahead of its time. It's a great idea, right? Yeah, I, th- I thought it was. I thought it was a good idea. I was hoping we um, were going to be able to. Uh, I, I was hoping we'd make it work a little bit more smoothly than we were able to. There's a lot of nuance in, in that process for sure, and but it was fun to work on, and I'm glad we did it. That's great. Funny enough, I know there's startups now that are working on video analytics to try to give you how long's the line and try to look at that and analyze that and working hard. And you just went kind of old school analog to digital, go ask the people, right? How long you've been waiting? That's impressive in 2015. I'm impressed by the audaciousness of your first thing that you built. So was Dabble Lab founded around voice or was that founded beforehand? And when did Dabble Lab, because I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, you do almost exclusively voice conversational AI work. Yeah, it's pretty much exclusively conversational AI, although we, we do some AI automation for analytics and robotic process automation for a, a couple of clients. But part of that, it, it, it's still related to a conversational front end. So even though it's not conversational, it's still AI and so related. But I had a company that, that I sold in 2014, and I, I spent time, I was one of the founders of a, an incubator. And so there, so I was working around like a lot of other entrepreneurs and, and, and startups. And so I, I just, when I exited from my uh, last company, I, I really just wanted to get back to dabbling and messing around with code. I, I was an engineer, but as the, the company grew, I was spending less time coding and I really love that stuff. So my main goal was just to like, just explore different things. And machine learning was something that I was very interested in before voice. And, and so I was working on stuff like, well, I like the cryptocurrency trading bot and it's just some other things that they were just side projects, but we I, I, I ended up hiring a couple of people f- for a, a few of these projects to, to help, and that just morphed into what Dabble Lab is today, for the most part. I mean, we uh, there was a lot of focus on uh, Alexa early on, and 
Twilio is a client of ours, and, and we built a plugin for Autopilot, which is their AI platform for the Twilio CLI. So if you're an Autopilot developer and, and you use the, the Twilio CLI with the, the Autopilot plugin, like we built and support the Autopilot plugin. And, and so we started working with them pretty early on. We've also built uh, templates for Amazon. So if you're an Alexa developer and you go through the Amazon Developer Console, you'll see templates from Dabble Lab. And so we, I think just because we got going early on and, and we really enjoyed it, it, it became our focus. And uh, fortunately, you know, the, for, for us, the work has, has continued coming in. And so we just stayed there and, and we still love it. That's awesome. And what's the mix of the work right now? Where are you getting the, the bulk of your clients? Or what kind of work are you enterprise, doing? Enterprise is mostly what we're doing. And, and even more specifically, I would say support center type stuff. So support centers, people used to always think call centers uh, where people are calling on the phone. But support centers today are people messaging with SMS messages, WhatsApp messages, messenger messages. They want to get support now through smart devices. And so contact centers are, are challenged to keep up with all of these different modes of communication that customers uh, want support on. And a, a lot of, it, there's a lot of interest there in automating different support routines and in using um, AI and conversational AI to, to improve the overall customer experience, but, but also just enable scaling or, you know, support at scale. And so, it, yeah, we, almost exclusively are, are, are working with a handful of uh, very large enterprises that are uh, doing like support at scale. That's where the money is. I think there's a lot of people focused on voice on the B2C side and they don't see on the B2B behind the firewall. I mean, that's tangible ROI. If I can cut a contact center's cost fewer calls, if I can automate it, or even if I can use AI to help that person actually answer questions better, faster, or quicker with CSR. And there's just, there's a lot of innovation happening there. And I don't think it's not the, it's not the sexy part of the industry, but in another case, it really is because there's a lot of money and a lot of investment going in there. And I actually would argue there's probably a lot of the innovation that's happening right now in AI and voice is coming from that area because there's such heavy investment there. So great place. I to think be. it's sexy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, a, and I say that because it's very challenging. I mean, it, you really do get to, to dive like into some, if you enjoy this stuff, some challenges that are really engaging to work on. So you're tying into different systems and, and, and trying to, to your point, we recently finished um, a, a project for a large energy company, like an electric company. And their challenge was when the power goes out on a power grid, and, and that happens from time to time, unfortunately. But when it happens, you can imagine the, the customer's first response to that, which is like to try to contact the, the power company somehow uh, to find out when their power is going to go on. They can't really staff a contact center to be prepared for that because they don't know when the power is going to go out. They don't want it to ever go out. So what happens is when there is a need, there's just no resources. And that's super frustrating on the the, the customer side, as, as, as you can imagine. And so, yeah, we built an AI bot that basically when the customer um, calls in or texts in or, or however they connect, 
the the bot asks for their uh, their address, looks up in a they're forget exactly what they call, but basically a system that manages the outages and the, how long it's going to take for the outage to likely be restored, and lets the uh, the, the customer know when they think the power is going to be restored. Gives them the option to get SMS updates anything changes with the status and stuff that conversational AI is perfect for. It's not consumer facing sexy, but I think it's pretty sexy. <laughs> well, it is, and it helps people. And you're, as you're thinking about that, I was thinking I had an experience, my garbage company, well, it's a big one, it's for public services though. So they proactively text me. And I think if you call, you talk to a bot now. Yeah. And, and that's the oldest of old school businesses. And yet they're using modern tech to provide better and quicker and faster customer service. So you're absolutely right. There's huge, huge opportunities there. I wanted to ask, so when I say the word Dabble Labs in the community, the first thing I people often is, wow, what amazing tutorials those guys have, right? That's what you're really, really well known for. And indeed how I discovered you guys back when I was doing Alexa development. And I will tell you, I think my favorite tutorial that I've used, you did one around flash briefings and setting up an API. And I definitely oh, yeah, used I that. that to yeah, I, pl I played with that and used it to, to launch a couple experiments, so to speak. But I've always loved your tutorials around, wow, it's the simplest possible way to get some value and something done. So tell me, I guess, a little bit more around the tutorials and what drives you to create so many great, fabulous and amazing tutorials. I could gush on about your tutorials. I, I really appreciate that. That's it's great to hear they they were helpful to you. Honestly, I start I create tutorials for for myself first. I love that other people get value out of it. But I I, I used to be uh, like a, a Microsoft trainer, a soft, software trainer for Microsoft Technologies years ago. And one of the things that I learned in, in doing that is I when I was preparing to to do those courses, they were like in person instructor led, you know, in businesses. I just got a better understanding myself. And, and I learned faster when I focused on how I was going to explain it to somebody else. So most of the tutorials that I put out there are, are just me learning myself. And I just learn faster when I take the time to think about how I would explain it to somebody else. And it just gives me a, a better understanding so I, I think published hundreds of tutorials, but I've got hundreds that I haven't published that I just, that's just my process for learning. And all of this stuff moves so quickly. You do these things too, that any tactic or strategy that can help you learn faster is, is something you, you cherish. And creating tutorials for me is that thing. Totally understand that, and I get that. And I, actually, I can really relate because I create this is for Bixby a weekly tutorial. Yeah, and I have yeah, to go I'm and go not. if I can't understand something, <laughs> somebody else isn't. So I'll go to figure it out. And you're right, figuring out how to create a tutorial is a great way for you to understand it. And you, you get almost as much for yourself out of it as anything else. And then you just share it with the world. So it's this kind of win-win across the board. But they're fun to create, and they're a good way to keep up with the technology. Right. And, yeah, and I, share. I guess that's the main thing I, I think for me is is it's just a great way to to try to stay on top of the stuff that moves so quickly. Before we got on the podcast, we were talking about how the heck do you keep up with technology moving so darn fast? And this is one little trick is create tutorials. Yeah, I always say I have some tutorials. I look back and I was like, Ooh. but you know what? People get some value on them and make it original. Like you make an error in a tutorial that makes it real. Right. 
Like then someone's like, oh, I get their thinking of or how to fix this. No, I think they're, I think they're fabulous. So keep it up. I, yeah, thank you. And you don't have that. I think a lot of people overthink the tutorials. It's not our core business, um, so, but I, I think it really, it, it's about the content and how you deliver it, which is the main thing. My tutorials, I, most of them aren't really edited. There's no like flashy intros or, or exit outros, or I don't even use music behind them or anything. Some like Sohini on our team, if you, a few other people that do tutorials do a much better job, I think, than me at like just polishing them. But I, I just really try to focus on the organization of the, the content. And again, for myself first. Yeah. Well, it's almost like uh, film a code along. Film yourself yeah. coding and try yeah. to figure something out and then share it with the world. I think that yep. works. I think that works pretty darn well, actually. And there's a genuineness to that if it's not too slick that I think is very attractive, actually. Because it's like, wow, this guy, he made a mistake there and then he fixed it. Oh, wow, that makes me think, oh, that's next time. If I see that mistake, it'll help me. So I, I think that's really effective. But I want to talk about GPT-3. So I think pretty much most listeners know what it is, but just in case they don't, so can you give just a high-level overview of what GPT-3 is? Yeah, it, it, I mean, at, at the highest level, it's a natural language processing system, an AI system for performing natural language processing tasks. And it's a multi-use language model. So you can use it for anything and everything that you might need language processing for. So like everything from like spell check to classification to natural language generation. So it, it's kind of a like a Swiss army knife of language processing. It's a single API that can do all these different things. But the actual model itself, a GPT-3, and there's multiple models, is a massive model, 174 billion character inputs, parameters, input parameters. So it's a very, very large model. And so it's extremely capable of lots of different types of language processing tasks. And it's pre-trained, so you don't have to do a lot of like data preparation and, and training and all of those things that would typically be part of building like your own model or AI system. So it's quite easy to get going with. That's great. I know you just wrote a book and it's probably full of examples, but what's a couple examples that you think are good ones that kind of show off a little bit what GPT-3 does? I, I have one that I, I just got, I just got published. So I just published an Alexa skill. It just got approved to publish a few days ago. I needed to get approval from OpenAI and also get approval from Amazon, but it's an Alexa skill called Improv. And it lets users have a, a conversation with GPT-3, like Improv, if you're, uh, you're familiar with that. It, it's not always funny, but it can hold a conversation, like an open-end conversation, almost indefinitely. And if you like conversational AI, and, and I know you do, and I'm guessing uh, maybe a lot of the listeners do, if you built that using a supervised process or you created an interaction model for Alexa, you, you just, you couldn't anticipate all of the different possibilities that, you know, might exist for a, a, a true improv session. And, and that's why I picked that one. I'm not like an improv practitioner myself, but I enjoy watching it. I think it's hysterical. But it seemed like a really good use case for open-ended AI-generated conversation. And that's why I was interested in it. There, it I started it a year ago, and, and it just got done. And, and that a lot of it was like approvals because open-ended 
types of applications with GPT-3 or you've got to be really careful because the, the model is going to generate output that or generate a result. They call it a completion that can be very unpredictable because it's using data from the internet. It's trained on data from the internet. And so a, a lot goes into making sure that it doesn't say something that would be you know, offensive or racially charged or politically charged or re- religiously inappropriate. A, a lot went into the, the filtering part of it. Probably, I don't know, it, probably 80% of the development was just kind of trying to keep it in the rails. But, but yeah, finally got that done. And, and so you can uh, test it out there. I, uh, there's a cost for using GPT-3. It's free right now. So I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure that out. So right now, the number of interactions that you can have with it is limited per person. And I'm trying to work that through, but it is free. If anybody wants to try it, it's a, a lot went into, like I said, making it work. So I haven't done much polish. So like one of the things I, I worked pretty, I spent a lot of time on, but ended up just not being able to get it quite right. So it's not in there yet was a fine tuned model that you can also do now with GPT-3 to try to classify responses as being likely funny or not, because sometimes it'll respond with stuff that's just not all that funny. It keeps the conversation going, but I, I was trying to figure out like how you could kind of coach it to, to do like respond with things that might be more entertaining. So that's coming like APL, like a graphical UI for devices that have screens is, is coming and, and some other things, but it's functional now and it's entertaining. I don't know if that's the best practical use case, but I think it's one of the best illustrations of what's possible without programming. More practical use cases would be things like classification, language translation, entity extraction, pulling information out, summarization, I think is a, a great use case. You you know pull long like legal articles or something like that and summarize them for a fifth grader. So there's just a lot of really practical uses. In the book, there, I think it's over a hundred different use cases. And the book sort of starts out, I really tried to make it something that even if you don't have a programming background, you could pick up and get going with it. Because one of the cool things about GPT-3 is you really don't need to know how to program. It's you pass text in, which is referred to as the prompt, which kind of coaches the underlying model on what you're trying to achieve in terms of a response and the response is referred to as the completion. And so there are uh, tricks and and things that you can do, different ways that you can organize the input, not not programming, but coaching. You you pass in different prompts. And so there's lots of different prompt examples. And then the the beginning of the book is just an introduction. It's all like no code stuff through the first few chapters. And then the, the, the back half of the book is There are a lot of code examples done in Python and JavaScript, and it all culminates into a project in the end that you can build, which I call GPT Answers, and it's like a kind of an ask me anything sort of app, and there's, you can train it to, or use your own data. So, you know, if you wanted to build like a, ask me anything about yourself or about a product or something like that is, uh, is, is the, the, the final final project. Well, I'm going to have to go check out Improv Planner right after we're done recording this, actually. Improv Partner. That sounds partner, fun. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Improv yeah. Partner. Sorry. Improv, yeah, partner. improv partner. And I'll yeah. put a I'll put a link to in the show notes. I was just thinking about that. If it's an improv, I can ask it anything. 
right? Mm-hmm. Which would yeah. be impossible to program traditionally, right? Yep. Just think yeah. of the inten- like the model of how you traditionally program any voice assistant. Forget it. Yeah. Game over. But you're passing that text over to GPT-3 with some tuning. And I know there's parameters and things you get. And you get things back. But yep. then it sounds like sometimes it's inappropriate what gets what comes back. And so do you just make another call and you get something, a different thing back and tell something that passes those filters works or? Yeah, yeah. There's some dancing that happens behind before you actually hear what comes back. And sometimes you think something's going on because there's some latency and, and I'm kind of, I'm working through that. But at a, at a high level, what happens is you say something that gets passed to GPT-3 and GPT-3 generates a, a response, a, a, a completion. And then that completion is used to send another request back to GPT-3. Only the, the second request is using a different model to do content filtering. And, and, and then I also, I, I started mentioning when it comes back, I'm, there's a, a custom model that I'm working on that, that sort of does another check uh, on after the content filtering is done to see sort of like different ways that you could respond. So for example, if the response to the, uh, the, the content filter was, this is inappropriate, we, I, I didn't just want to end the session. So like right. you have a different model that'll sort of redirect it. Maybe say something like, uh, you're boring me. Let's talk about this rather than saying ah. goodbye. And so, um, yeah, so there's sort of a third leg of that that handles that part. So is GPT-3, is it content filtering itself? You said you get this completion and mm-hmm. then you go back and make another call that helps with the content filtering. So yep. is it involved in its own content filtering, its own content that it returned? That's right. Yeah. So so interesting. Yeah. So the the it's a different model that's tuned for filtering. And what it responds with is, is basically a score. So you pass in the completion text from the previous term and it's going to respond back with that this is this seems okay, this is questionable, or, you know, don't use that. And so you basically get a, a score back, you know, uh, zero, one, or two, and you decide what to do from there based on that score. So if it's God. completely inappropriate, you, you redirect. If it's questionable, like maybe you run another round to see, like, can, can we use that or some, some other checks? And I've got some non-GPT-3 stuff in there, like just bad word filters and things like that. Right now, i I, I, I don't like the user wouldn't see any of that happening, but trying to, to tune it and see, you know, how much of that comes in. It's hard because it, it, if you're a stand-up comedy fan or uh, improv fan, some of the funniest skits are inappropriate. Uh, and so, like, <laughs> right. Right. you know, uh, by, by the content filtering standards, you know, and everybody's standards are, are different. But so it, it's been a fun, it's been a fun project to work on. Yeah, you, you remind me, it's like the Alexa came out with the Samuel Jackson voice and there's two versions of it. There's the free version that's like the G-rated version. And then if you want Samuel Jackson, his voice, the R-rated version, you pay a buck. I didn't realize that. I knew about yeah. the Samuel Jackson voice. I didn't realize that there was a like a, an adult version. You can imagine a, an adult version of Samuel Jackson, right? So, yeah. <laughs> yes, there's an adult version, but you got to like opt in. So they got around it by opting. I think you pay 99 cents for the adult version, which I promptly did. Yeah, I I think that's going to be like, that's going to be the interesting challenge with these large language models, because like 
the content, what's appropriate or, or, or what is, you know, acceptable is, is really like, it just depends. Like there's so many factors. It depends if you, I, I love going and watching stand-up comedy, but you'll, if you go to that and you see the, the comedian make a joke, but some people will be rolling. Some people will be walking out of the room. It's just, it's just a, like a personal, personal thing. Cultural and political, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And those are very mm-hmm. personal things, right? One's yep. culture and one's politics. And, and yeah. it's very easy. And some of the funniest stuff goes into that, goes there. Yeah. But you're absolutely right that it's easy to offend. So I'm curious diving a little bit more into what GPT-3 is. So what I've seen commercialized primarily that I'm aware of is a bunch of things that are quote unquote writing helpers. Like you give it an idea yeah. and it helps you write a sentence. And it seems like there's a more than enough companies doing that right now. <laughs> it seems like a lot of people had the same idea and they're trying to sell it. So clearly it does some things there. But what are a couple other things you think GPT-3, maybe the, the promises there you're kind of excited about? What's it, what's it really good at? I think answering and knowledge surfacing is there's a lot of potential there. There's some challenges there because it's difficult to what's factual and what's not. And and so there's definitely some work that needs to be done in question answering. But we worked on a a project for the city of Lake Forest, which is in uh, Orange County, California, a a few years ago. And the requirement was in their very, very forward thinking. We were talking earlier about business and, and government, even in non-tech are getting really very forward thinking when they see what's out there. But what they wanted to do was basically have an AI bot that could answer their term was not so frequently asked questions. So frequently asked questions, somebody can just go to a website and usually you go to FAQ and you see, but like in their case, their city government supporting residents of, of the city of Lake Forest that might ask somebody spray painted a tag on the park slide. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. How do I get that removed or who do I report that to? And those kinds of questions, some human needs to feel because they come in as email or they come in as a voicemail or, or something like that. And you can imagine if you've got a small staff and, and lots of residents and relatively speaking, no matter how big the staff is relative to the number of people that live in the city, it's going to be small. And so it becomes a big job. And what we worked out for them was a a system where the first time somebody asked a question that the bot wasn't familiar with, it would route the question to a human. The human would then answer the question back to the bot, training the bot how to answer that question the next time that it comes up. So it was sort of like a self-learning knowledge you know, knowledge base. Mm -hmm. We spent a lot of time on that. I mean, this was a, you know, a, a pretty pretty significant project. Like we, we spent a lot of time on it. GPT-3 does that out of the box, like in, in two minutes, you know? And, and so there, you know, that I think that is like a, a great potential application. The ability to use one API to do a lot of different things by itself, I think has a lot of value. And right now they're like most natural processing systems that are like purpose-built, they're designed to do something specific, like you know, all content filtering is one, you know, it looked like a common one or, or ranking or classifying of any sort. That's a type of that. They're oftentimes purpose-built and very specifically trained for that one task. And so like, if you're a developer that needs that done, you can you know build that yourself or in a lot of cases, go find 
an API service provider or somebody that's done that, but you're working with like lots of different ones. And that becomes, you know, that can become challenging where with the OpenAI API, you basically, you're learning what API, which is really easy because you're just passing text in and you're getting a response back, you know, and you can massage the prompts and you can just do a lot without having to go to a lot of different places. I think that it's hard to explain, but that's like one big value. So one API that does language translation, grammar checking, classification, language generation, you know, and, and, and every other possible, you know, language processing task that you can imagine. Well, you're getting me excited. <laughs> I got to tell you. So uh, great example. It sounds like there's this incredibly powerful and there's a little bit of exploration to figure out what are all these amazing things that this tool can do. Which leads me to my next question now. What can it do? What have you seen? You must have seen or you tried yourself some things where you're like, oh yeah, throw this at GPT-3 and it just fails and it's just not good. And I think that there's been a lot of hype around it and sometimes hype exceeds reality. So I'm curious about maybe an example or two of things that maybe not so good at doing, at least yet. The factual answers, that's a tough problem. So like if, if you did want to use, I saw actually it was just today or yesterday there the, the news broke that there were, there was an interview with Sam Altman who's the CEO of OpenAI and he's he said that GPT-3.4 is coming it, you know there's been rumors around that and a lot of the rumors have speculated that it's going to be like you know five times bigger 10 times bigger so all, all kinds of stuff like that but the article that I was reading and, and I didn't listen to the interview real time the, the article said that there's going to be a lot more focus on processing and you know when I think about the models and, and what they're doing right now I, I read an archive Arvix people called Arvix archive paper that this, the Google research team published not not so long ago that like these models might replace search where like you can imagine right now it, it, it can't do that because the models are really expensive to build and like GPT-3, the, it, it's not up to date. You can't get real-time information. I don't even know that it knows about the outcome of the last election, presidential election in the US or anything like that. But I, I, I can imagine a, a, a future where it is being like rebuilt maybe in gradients in, in almost real time. And when you get to that point, I mean, you know, you could ask it anything and, and, and it could tell you and have a conversation with you about it. And so there are a lot of shortcomings that would be things that you would expect, I think, or at least I do with any new technology and especially technology that's like a machine learning or data driven on open data. I mean, if you Google anything, you're going to need to spend some time to validate what you've Googled to find out if it's factual. So th there are challenges for sure, but there are challenges that I think would exist regardless of what technology you're using to a certain degree. I'm biased, obviously, too, but so consider that. I, I was thinking of an example. I was in a talk and they were asking, actually, is this AI being called Clara, who's GPT-3 powered? And we could ask Clara questions and people, and somebody asked her a question about COVID. And GPT-3 doesn't understand COVID because the corpus of data was before COVID was around. That's right, yeah. Right? And so it's you're right. It's a set thing in time, but that would be really powerful if re-indexing 
along the way than it because a lot of a lot of people will ask questions about relatively current modern day events or there's been something new discovered that, yep. that's that's relevant to the question or the data that you're asking about so uh great great example so i'm curious have you now steve obviously you've done a ton of work with gpt3 I know Google has made a lot of noise, and I'm forgetting what they called it, their developers conference at a tool that seemed like somewhat competitive. Like I know the there's a couple. Lambda, there's GP, Lambda, Lambda, yeah, and there's GPT Neo and GPT J, mm -hmm. some open source alternatives. I'm wondering yeah. if you've had a chance to to play with any of those tools. I, I have, I have not Lambda, but I've spent some time with the uh, GPT Neo and GPT J and Cohere, which is another one that, like, I, I dabbled around with, and I spent a, like a, a decent amount of time with GPT two as well. And there's, you know, I think we're just getting started. I, I would expect that you will see one from Amazon at some point. You know, maybe Samsung, and it, it, I think a lot of the bigger players will be using this large language models in like different ways and making them available. So I, I think it's just getting, and there's already some just incredible applications of large language models. So Codex and Copilot, they're both in private beta also, but they're variants of GPT-3 that are used for generating source code. So writing code. And I'm fortunate to, to have gotten into the private betas for both of those. And they are absolutely astounding, you know, as a, a programmer, a developer, they're going to, they're just going to change everything in my opinion, when it comes to, to programming, you know, a lot of times how it works today is if I don't know how to do something syntax or whatever, I'm going to Google it. A lot of times that'll like take me to Stack Overflow or something like that. And I'm going to like sort through a bunch of stuff, look for the green check mark, go to that first, you know, probably copy and paste some code from there over to what I'm trying to do and mess around with it. Codex or, and Copilot, like they're basically can do all of that for you. And it's kind of like super powerful autocomplete where it's not just code completion. It, it like will write the code for you and if you know what you're doing in the first place, it just makes you a lot more productive. I do a lot of like um, big on just like tracking my time and just like efficiency, kind of efficiency geek in ways. So I've been just tracking my own output efficiency and it's, you know, three to five times more efficient on certain things using Copilot, which has a plugin for Visual Studio Code, which is what I use. And I just, like, I can't imagine programmers in years to come being able to be competitive. It's speed is, mm -hmm. you know, it's important, <laughs> you know, like speed wins. And so I, I just can't uh, imagine programmers being competitive with, without these tools. I think we were, you know, we were talking before we started recording, I, it, like metaphorically, I think of it as, as like, you know, if, if you were a lumberjack and you didn't know the chainsaw had been invented, it wouldn't matter how sharp your axe was or how quickly you swung it or how strong you were. You just would not be able to compete with a chainsaw. And, and metaphorically, I mean, the, 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 the chainsaw is, you know, Copilot or, or Codex or these large language models that can write code. It strikes me a lot of development is a lot of plumbing code we got to write. 
to yeah. get things working. And then there's a lot of syntax. And mm -hmm. half the time I forget the syntax to do X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And I go over and do a Stack Overflow too. That takes a lot of time. Boy, I'm yeah. pretty excited about a tool that helps me do that. Yeah. To get I mean, it more productive and really express what I want to build quicker. I have an idea, I have a concept, I want to build this thing. But yeah, I get caught up all the time in, in writing the plumbing and the, the syntactically, I don't have it quite right. And that way, if you can make that faster, that is a big win in my book. I mean, it's, I talk, talk to a younger or earlier, like in their career programmers on our team. And like, I think a lot of times you get hung up with trying to memorize all the syntax, like, like that's going to make you more productive and you can't, like, you just can't. So you're going to lose that. <laughs> like, don't try to do that. There's going to be some things that, you know, it, you'll just do often enough where they'll stick. But today you need to find a, in my opinion, like a, a, a way to get those answers very quickly. And yeah, I mean, it. I, when I was working on the book, initially, I wanted to have code examples in four different languages, uh, you know, definitely like JavaScript and Python, which are both in the book, but I also originally wanted to have C Sharp and Go in there as well. And we ended up not including C Sharp and Go, but, you know, writing the code examples, if you know how to program in, in one language, they're kind of all the same. It's really a lot of it is just syntax differences. So if you know like, oh, I need, you know, to, to loop through something, you know, a, a for loop, or I need to know how to break out of a loop or something like that, how you do that in terms of like the syntax that you write in Go might be different than how you would do that in JavaScript, but conceptually it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you can look at the code and go, oh yeah, that looks right. Like the code that um, Copilot writes or, or Codex writes. And then, you know, modern code is most like very commonly run through syntax checkers of some sort, like linters or something like that. So, you know, my workflow now, you know, with Copilot is like, I write a lot of this stuff using Copilot and then I use like ESLint for JavaScript, you know, and just check like for syntax, you know, to conform to like good syntax practice and things like that. And I don't really try to memorize it. I, I can't, I can barely memorize what I had for breakfast this morning. But <laughs> <laughs> I resemble that comment. And that's another example, another use of the kind of technology that we're talking about, right? Yeah, right. for sure. Is, is, yeah, is, I think is, that's is, one of the best use cases. I mean, it's a tremendous use case because it, you know, that use case enables so many other innovations. You know, you're going to like, you can just unlock so much potential that uh, kind of where we started with the, the conversation around if you could if you can remove friction between the idea or the concept and the end result like that's the goal and so now if you can either do that by enabling fewer developers to produce more code or you can do that by just not having developers in the middle for some types of things it's just going to open up a lot of possibilities, in, in my opinion. Awesome. I'm super excited about that. I know there's a bit of controversy where some developers are like, oh, my God, it's going to take my job. I'm like, no, it's not. It's going to make you better. That's exactly <laughs> right. right. It's, this it's this is going to make you better and more effective, right? And get rid of, like I said, all that BS, like plumbing code and syntactical thing. And you're, what a great example of different languages, right? Because I can read a lot more languages than I can write in. Yeah. Right. Most languages I can get most. Okay. Get straight. Lisp. Even though I took that. 
gets my head to spin because because it's been a long. But most of the language, modern languages that are common, I can read it and understand most of what's going on. Yeah. But I can't necessarily write it, and so that this really helps. And things and it helps as an educational thing too. If it's like I can, God, how do I do that, man? I know how to do that in JavaScript, but how do I do the same thing in Python? And if I could help it, and it'd be like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. This syntactical sugar is a little bit different, right? Yeah. But it it does the same thing. I think that's incredibly powerful. So speaking about developing, you clearly you said you, Steve, you love doing these tutorials and you continue to do them. I'm curious on your client projects. I know you have a whole team at Dabble Labs that does this work. Are you out there developing in client projects? Not, not so much. I I love programming, but I'm not quite the engineer that some of the other people are on the team. Sure. So, so you know, I I do like stay close to the projects, and you know, I do get into looking at the code at times and and, and trying to like work through. It. architecturally like the best approach at going things going at different things but i'm not i'm not contributing as much personally to client projects that's mostly the 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 team is doing that so a lot of my coding is like the tutorials and dabbling i very often will will dabble with stuff and then contribute that to the team that's working on a project and say hey maybe you could do it this way i was just playing with Got this it. thing and and so, so yeah, just exploring different possible ways of, of doing things. Interesting. So you love the developer education side. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say that's my role, you know, even more so than being CEO is like, I'm a developer evangelist within our company. And, you know, so I, I love that role. I mean, to a fault, maybe even <laughs> so I can get Got it. Well, you get to work with some of the cool new technologies like GPT-3 yeah. and then yeah. go and say, well, is this applicable? Right. Yeah. We have a business problem here. We have this cool new technology is that, you know, the Lego pieces fit together or some, maybe they don't yet, but maybe in the future as these technologies evolve, they will. I think it's that's a, a pretty cool place to be. It's a, uh, it is. I love it. It's, it's tricky. It, it's a tricky balance because, you know, in the, the name Dabble Lab came from this idea that you've got to spend time dabbling, like just being curious about technology. And if, if you limit it to, to that, like, you know, I'm just messing around. I'm just dabbling. It, it's it's not as serious. Like dabbling is, is just kind of playing. And, and I think that takes some of the pressure off to like where I've got to know everything. But there are gonna, there's times when you really do need to understand it. And, and that's where the lab part comes in. So like it sort of like when you are working on something that you really do need to understand, you need to bring it into the lab and break it down and, and really but they kind of both work together and you have to be be disciplined sometimes because it's really easy to get excited about new technology. But you, if you think that it is something that, that, you know, you should or could use for a client project, it needs to go into the lab for a bit first. Like you need to, like, you really do need to make sure that you're not just, just constantly plugging in new things. There's, software patterns. And I read a book a long time ago that I still think about called anti-patterns and anti-patterns. Have you read that one? Yeah. Yes. I I used to do pretty hardcore Java development way back when. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Java, all the patterns and that, and there's a whole bunch of books and the anti-patterns around Java and what's been written there. And, and well, in software, in the way back in, there was the gang of four, right? Yeah. yeah, uh, That's right. I don't even know if they teach that stuff in modern computer science classes anymore. Yeah. Right. But I mean, yeah, the patterns book. That's an older one, but there, there's one one pattern, any pattern that you, like I see often the golden hammer, which is basically if you know one programming language, you use that for everything. 
and everything is going to sort of be a fit for whatever you know most. And But the opposite of that, which I don't think was covered in that book, because I think it's maybe a newer thing, I think would be like you're using something different for everything. <laughs> you know, so it's like the exact opposite, just because it's shiny, it's new, it's, you know, like, cool. I like to laugh at that. That's like AI will solve all problems. Yeah. And we'll have to put everything on the blockchain. Yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. right? Right? That's going to solve all world problems. And those are great, both really cool, interesting technologies that are fascinating. And they're yeah. applicable to some things. And there's a bunch of the world's problems that we're trying to solve that they're completely inapplicable to. It's just like when you go in your tool chest, right tool for the right job. If you don't have the right tools, the job takes 10 times longer. That's right. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's uh, yeah. So, so true. So, Steve, you and I have talked that we've been developing for quite a while. Is there a time when you think you're going to stop developing? Are you going to be, you know, 80 years old and still uh, cranking out the tutorials and developing many moons in the future? Or is there a time when you think you, you, you hang up the spurs? I hope I'm writing code until the day I die or until the day I genuinely don't enjoy it, you know, whichever comes first or, or and, you know, if I just can't for, for you know, physical or cognitive reasons or, or whatever. Uh, I had a, my, my younger brother is a programmer also, and I, I'm 52 now. He's 40. Well, he'll be 50 this, this year. So in the programming world, you know, o- older, <laughs> but we've both been programming since we were teenagers. And, you know, and the, and the thing we were talking about is like, well, you know, like there, there, there are no 80 year old programmers, like, well, we'd be programming, but programming wasn't a thing when they were growing up. So what's different now is I know a, a lot of people who are my age that have been programmers most of their lives, you know, like they've been writing code, like, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the com era, you know, you know, was, there was just like a lot of people that were heads down and this was what they did and, and you know, enjoyed. And so I, I don't think I'll be alone. Like, I, you know, I, I do a lot with Twilio where they're a client of ours and, and we're a, a Twilio partner. I'm a Twilio champion and they're, you know, their CEO, like if you go to their event, you know, he's writing code at most of those events in between something. I, I think there, there, now there's just, you know, people that have been programming their whole life and or most of their life and enjoy it. So I think those people, myself and my peers in our 80s, unless we stop liking it, I, I don't know why we wouldn't continue doing it. Well, or, yeah. What, what, what yeah, do you I think? You, you write code. Uh, what, you, how old do you well, think? Well, and I was going to say, I'll, I'll age myself. The first code I ever wrote was on a Commodore, right? In basic, right? You fired it on at high school. They had these Commodores. You fire, you know, first program you write is 10. You know, print hello world, 20, go to 10, right? You're like, woohoo. And all we wanted to do was program games, right? So we tried to program those in basic on those Commodores, and then they weren't fast enough. So then I searched in 6502 assembly, which is pretty hardcore, actually, probably, and things, trying to figure out how to make games. We could save a, we didn't have to put a quarter in the arcade and could play it. We never could get it close, but, you know, we wanted to. But uh, yeah, I think it's, so it's interesting because I have two teenage daughters and I've talked to them about it. One of my younger daughters is a little more technology bent, right? She likes it. And I've tried to encourage it. She's done some things, but she shies away from it. And I'm like, you know what? It's really a way of thinking. It's very logical, but it's also super creative. It really puts your brain in a way where it really exercises it. So I yeah. think of that like, when? what about, yeah, when I'm up there, right? When I'm in my 80s, right? Man, that's probably really good for you, right? To go and do that. And I'm—I want to be curious about the world, right? 
So I don't know, 30 plus years from now, I don't know, there's going to be some, you know, whatever we talk about now is going to be completely antiquated. Some crazy virtual reality thing that looks like complete reality. Heck yeah, I want to try to code that. <laughs> it might be like really retro though. Like I try to yeah. think like in, in 30 years, it might be like super retro like today if I did calligraphy or something like that, you know, and like there are people that like just, you know, that's the, their thing. They like to practice calligraphy and just like, I think that's super oh. cool. But like maybe writing code like in 30 years will be like writing, like doing calligraphy is today. It'll just be like this like retro, <laughs> super retro thing where AI oh, is cool. just doing all the, yeah, but I'm good with that. I mean, for me, I just really enjoy it. I think, I think it's kind of therapeutic too. Like when, you know, when you're really like into it, it's hard to think about anything else and life can, you know, get complex and just a way to escape where you just kind of have one thing to think about is, is kind of nice. I agree. I agree. You know, what's old becomes cool again. I've been dabbling and looking a lot at NFTs now and I'm cracking oh, yeah. up at all the eight bit yeah. pixel art is back, baby. Because yeah. <laughs> so, so much of those, the generative art that's on the NFT scene is like pixel yeah. art, including things that are the crypto punks at hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars. People yeah. are paying for a bit of pixel art, which is just super crazy and fascinating and interesting at the same time to me. But so as we kind of wrap up, one question I always like to ask is, I call it my hidden gem question. What's a voice experience? Could even be a podcast, something voice conversational AI related that you enjoy, that you think that you'd like others to experience? Maybe it's something that isn't so widely known that's uh, fun and interesting to you. Oh gosh, I my answer to this, I, I guess I'm kind of a, a pragmatist. Like, like I'm looking at voice for how it can be practical more so than entertaining. I don't do like a lot of the voice games. I, I think they're interesting from like a development perspective, but those kinds of things. But I, I do a lot with like home automation just for my own home, and and I love that stuff. And I think like the most practical. It's going to sound like just you know very routine, but like. Uh, Voice for controlling TVs is, is I love it. Oh. Yeah. And so I, I have, have, well, Fire TV I, I use. And I just think that is one of the most practical and, and great inventions. Like the, the inventions, but use cases is better than inventions. Oh, come on. Smashing buttons on a remote is a horrible UX, right? It really is. Right for when yeah. we're having text input, what a, it's such yeah. so natural on the TV, and I keep on waiting. Like, and multiple, we're doing it. Amazon's doing it. Google's doing it. I understand Comcast has done some really cool stuff, but I keep. I'm like, man, nobody's really fully figured out that experience. I want something not only fun and watches to recommend things or do that. I don't know. My family spends a whole lot of time sometimes, you know. With all the streaming stuff, there's like 700 things to watch and we can't figure out the one to watch. So I want I, some AI that helps me do that, man. But you can bounce around really quickly. I mean, I, yeah, it's it, true. I'm going to sound like super lazy, but you know, like I can go from Netflix to Hulu to whatever, like, yeah. you know, just like just talking, scroll up, scroll down, you know, and it's, I mean, yeah, like you remember, well, like I'm old, old enough, I, you know, to remember like having to get up to change the channel and then like, Oh, sure. The cable came out and there was like the box that had the the, the string attached to it, you know, yes. if it wasn't long enough, you're, you know, you were stuck. And then, you know, the remotes came out and you, you lose those, you have multiple remotes and it's, you know, let's like, 
But yeah, I kind of got that that's set up dialed in for you know how I, I like to you know use it for like entertainment and you know everything lights sprinkler systems everything and cool. I think it's great like you know that's I love that I would just soon have you know all of those kinds of things voice controlled or or you know ambient maybe not even voice but just like aware you come into a room and the things that you're likely to need lights, you know, those, you know, air, if you can turn off in, in the room, like those things just happen. I think that's incredibly cool. I mean, just, that's one of those things where it just makes things easier for you when it just happens. Voice is a step there, but that whole ambient idea, you got me laughing. I was like, you know, I'm like, yeah, my parents had a remote. Like, get up and change it to channel two. Adam 12 is coming right. Yeah, we were the remote. <laughs> yeah, we were the remote for our, yeah. for our pair. They had a remote, right? It's actually yeah. a pretty good remote. Yeah. It's a pretty like, decent voice-controlled yeah. remote, right? Yeah, it's in, in, intelligent beyond what the large language models are even providing. Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly. It's a little expensive. Had to feed it and care for it. But uh, <laughs> hey, Steve, prediction time. What's a prediction, short-term prediction, next year or two that you that you have. I'm pretty bullish on like we, we talked about like the uh, the language models for writing code and also for search. I I think in the in the next couple of years that's going to become mainstream fact. And uh, I think that the I think it's going to become a big part of voice assistants. You know, like they're the way that we're building voice assistants now from a developer perspective takes a lot of work, you know, to manage conversations and it's just not practical to create a really robust sort of experience without investing a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of like cycles. And with these models, I I think it's going to take a combination. You can't have everything just sort of working this way, but I I think it's going to open up a lot of possibilities for conversational developers. Awesome. I look forward to that as we were discussing. All right. How about a crystal ball time? Five, 10 years out. Now you get to get really off on a limb. What's the prediction you have? Five, 10 years out. Uh, oh gosh, does my mind go out that far? So I, I, I think, I, I do imagine a, a shift in how like search is done and information retrieval, like question answering, that, that kind of thing. You know, I, I think there's lots of potential for voice interfaces just accessing data like we access data through the browser. And I I can also imagine like a lot of more specialized access to subject matter experts. Like you might have your, your own model built for answering questions that, you know, Roger knows about like your own personal knowledge base or like professors at universities might have their own models built so that their students can interact with them through this sort of virtual version of them, you know, online influencers and podcasters and, you know, people want direct access to you or the value that you bring to them, which for subject matter experts or, you know, people who who are imparting knowledge, you know, they could be a, a great way of amplifying the, you know, the number of, of people you can affect and, and, you know, bring value to It's one of the other things I'm, I'm personally interested in. We've been working on and off on this project, Gabby, which is an AI for generating video tutorials, technical tutorials. And I, I, I think the idea of AI in education is... Oh. 
you know, is really cool. It just sort of education is, in my opinion, sort of the, the, the key to everything. And, and being able to democratize learning is a really a, a cool idea. And I, I think AI can get us down the road quite a ways. We could probably have a whole conversation about that because I get excited about the same thing. I, you know, I was just thinking, we're talking about scaling expertise, right? Using AI to scale and make it widely available. And that's so valuable in so many areas. So Steve, if people want to keep in touch with you, what's the, and, and or Dabble Labs, what's the best way to do so? For, for in both cases, Twitter probably is the best place to reach me directly. If, yeah, Twitter, it's twitter.com slash Tingeris, my last name for me directly, T-I-N-G-I-R-I-S. And for Dabble Lab, it's slash Dabble Lab, singular, D-A-B-B-L-E-L-A-B. And that is probably the uh, the best way to reach me. I'm, I'm also on all the, the other socials, so LinkedIn, or we have a dis- Discord server set up now too for like the GPT-3 stuff. If anybody's interested in that, you can leave a link. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll put links in the in the show notes there. And see, wow, this has been a great conversation. I think you and I could go another hour. Yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> I really love talking about this stuff because it's so fascinating and interesting. And you got your next customer for your book. Right after this, I'm going to go order it because it's something that I haven't dabbled in and I need to and want to, and I'm really excited about it. And you got me even more interested and excited. I always say a conversation is a great conversation if you walk out of it going, oh man, there's so many more things I want to do, right? So really, really, really appreciate it. Thanks for being a guest today. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I I enjoyed the conversation and I um, am very much looking forward to hearing what you uh, decide to build with GPT-3. So let's stay connected. I want to hear about that. Absolutely. Well, thanks. Thanks. I will definitely do that. Well, thanks, Steve. And that's all, folks. Till next time, this is Roger Kibbe of the Big Speed Developers Chat Podcast signing off.